Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Humility Gap podcast. I'm Bethan Willis, and throughout this series, I'll be talking to academics, politicians, and public figures to find out how we can become more open-minded. We'll be looking at the virtue of intellectual humility in order to help us really focus in on the habits and practices which can enable us to become more open-minded. On today's podcast, we'll be talking to Nigel Bigger, Regius Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford. We'll be discussing the changing nature of public debate and its relationship to the university, the place of emotions and social media and public discourse, and the role of humility and other virtues in mediating dialogue. So I'm here today with Ed Brooks, Executive Director of the Oxford Character Project. Hello, Ed. Hello. And welcome, Nigel. Thank you very much. Um, So let's begin by looking at your own experiences within the university. Um, You've spent your career in the university, held posts in the US, Ireland, where you were Chair of Theology and Ethics at Trinity College Dublin, and you've had two spells here at Oxford, Um, and you've written on the idea of the university as well. So what is it about inquiry in the university that is important to you? Well, one obvious thing that's that's really distinctive about university inquiry is that people in universities, unlike almost anywhere else, have time. So the kind of inquiry that you would expect people in universities to be able to achieve that can't be achieved elsewhere ought to be you know, well considered and and thorough and measured, um, because it's not as if people outside universities aren't intelligent, uh, but they're very busy. And they normally have to react to what's immediate, whether they're politicians or business people. Um, uh, and although, <laughs> particularly nowadays, people in universities are very busy, we still have more um, um, time that is free from distraction to conduct inquiries. So that's that's what's particularly valuable about university inquiry, I think. Do you think that's do you think that's changed over time? You talked about people getting busier, academics getting busier, and also I suppose universities in different places have different pressures. Has that changed over time or in different? Yeah, the, 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 there's absolutely no doubt. Uh, certainly, certainly in this country, um, that um, academics are busier um, to some extent uh, in the way that professionals of all kinds are, are busier because of of. Uh, government regulations and requirements for monitoring transparency. So, so a, a, a university lecturers and professors, just like policemen and doctors and everybody is complaining about paperwork. Um, so there's certainly that pressure. Um, uh, and because universities are more competitive between each other now, um, all sorts of things we have to engage in, like you know, research assessment exercises, that previous generations didn't have to do. So, so there's no doubt, I, I think, that um, contemporary academics in this country, in the UK, uh, have to work a lot harder uh, and are more hard-pressed and have less time than they would have done to, to conduct the, the thorough, well-considered inquiry. Uh, you've said before that the um, pursuit of knowledge is not about uh, the winning, but the wanting to find out the yeah, truth together. Yeah. That, that's that's yeah. the um, core purpose of the academy. It seems like that would be something that might get widespread assent, but is difficult to do. So how do we foster a sense of knowledge as a communal endeavour rather than as an individual asset? No, that's a, that's a, a good question. Um, I think the first thing to do is to bring our attention to the question, really, because um, I've never had it in my whole career. I've never had anyone raise the issue of 
um, what university students, postgraduate students or academics are trying to achieve when they engage in exchange. Um, it, 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 I suppose it first came to, to, to my attention when I um, found myself at the sharp end of a very competitive colleague. Um, and on that occasion, I, I can't remember the details, but I, on that occasion, unlike many occasions, I had the wit to respond. Uh, but I was just aware of, of, of a completely unnecess unnecessary um, competitive aggression. And in fact, in, in my own graduate school, uh, which was in, at the Divinity School in Chicago, there was a certain ethos of um, intellectual aggressiveness, um, which you know, some people were good at and enjoyed. Uh, many people found quite un un unpleasant and intimidating. But I suppose one thing to point out or, or to, to remind uh, those of us in universities is that we're not saints. Uh, we are driven by exactly the same range of human passions as, any as anyone else. Um, just because we don't kill people, and just because we don't um, uh, make um, extortionate profits out of people, uh, and just because we're all middle class, uh, doesn't mean that we're unusually nice. Um, we're not. We're driven by ambition. We're driven by jealousy. We're driven by uh, competition. We we are terrified of public exposure. Um, so we develop develop all sorts of um, defensive and aggressive um, uh, techniques. Um, and this this infects and distorts um, uh, human exchange in universities, just as it does elsewhere. And so so just to to, to raise awareness of that, and as I say, in my own career, no one has done that uh, before, I think is, is, is the first thing. And then to, to get uh, students and, and colleagues to think about, well, when we in, engage in exchange, what, is, what are we doing here? Um, is this an occasion uh, where we, um, we want to um, flaunt our power? Uh, is this an occasion where, where we, we're going to get joy out of humiliating someone else? Um, are we here simply to, to defend whatever we came in the door with? Or <laughs> um, um, are we here to gain something, like learn something? Um, and how do, how do we do that unless we um, expose the fact there's something we don't know? So I, th I think raising the questions again, people to think about, ooh, you know, <laughs> what are we about here? And, and Indeed, there are certain ways I can behave that can spoil the exchange where we don't learn. So there's that. But I think also for those of us who, who, who've uh, cottoned on to the issue, um, really important for us to show by example. So, I, I, although when I was younger, as, as one often is, one is quite insecure, and, and uh, I never used to open my mouth lest I, lest I appear to be stupid. Um, I, I got past that now, age of 64, about time. Um, and so a few years ago, in the course of a seminar, uh, we were talking about Hobbes, I think, Thomas Hobbes, the political philosopher. And I, uh, without thinking, said, well, I've not read him since, since I was an undergraduate. <laughs> uh, after the seminar, a younger colleague of mine came up to me with a look of horror on his face and said, how on earth did you dare say that? Now, he, he, he didn't say it in, a, in, in an admiring fashion. 
he was generally horrified. <laughs> that I, well, you hadn't read Hobbes, or horrified that you, well, you, you could have well, well, it, it could have been both, but certainly horrified that, <laughs> that, that I admitted it uh, with, with, with not a shame of embarrassment. Um, you know, I have read Hobbes, but not since I was an undergraduate. I, have read, I, I, I hasten to add, since then, I have read a bit more of them. But, but I guess I, I was completely unimpressed, really. I thought, I said, I said to him, or that I, I, I thought to myself, you know, those sorts of things I haven't read. And, uh, you know, time is limited. One, one concentrates in certain places, not in others. And the idea that there is something at all extraordinary or embarrassing... Uh, about admitting you don't know something or haven't read something is absurd, absolutely absurd. And uh, um, the, the, the sooner my students learn that, the, the better. Because uh, uh, because then when they realise it's okay to be ignorant, they might be much less um, um, hamstrung and tongue-tied in engaging in conversation. And, and, and if they become less hamstrung and tongue-tied... Uh, then they've got a chance to gain what they wouldn't otherwise gain. So I think that's a long answer to your question. But first of all, just saying this is an issue, folks. Um, and, and secondly, uh, demonstrating to students that the demonstration of ignorance is is just fine. Just fine. We should come to the um, present, perhaps, and um, let's talk about all that's happening at the moment and the discussions around free speech viewpoints in the university that are legitimate or illegitimate. How do you interpret our current state of debate? Yes, so, I mean, my my own um, direct experience has taken place over the last 12 months. Uh, We'll come to this a bit later, I know, uh, but but over my, uh, my interest in the ethics of empire. And uh, before that, um, all I knew about about the problem was really what I what I read about was happening in the United States. Um, well, but largely that. So, so uh, um, the culprit is identity politics. And um, as I understand it, um, the feature of identity politics that is problematic is this: um, that. What's really important is, is not the reasons people have, it's their interests. And there's a kind of soft Marxism here, so that, that um, really the, the reasons are the kind of the, the rationale, uh, which are merely expressions of, of deeper social economic interests. So um, the fact that I'm, I'm male and I'm white, I'm, good Lord, I'm Christchurch, Oxford, um, in the eyes of some, uh, uh, means that nothing that comes out of my mouth is worth listening to, because it, it's all rationalisation of my privilege and my interest. All you need to know about me is is who I am and where I am, and what colour skin I have and what social class I am. Now, if that's if that's your view, then uh, um, rational conversation is actually beside the point, and uh, certainly my experience. In, over the, the Ethics and Empire project has, has confirmed that. I, I, I was completely taken by surprise to discover there are not just students, but certain academic colleagues with whom rational give and take is really not the point. And I, I tried to do it for a while, and I thought, this is, this is getting absolutely nowhere. Um, and um, that was quite a surprise. But I, I think, as I've 
try to analyze it, it is it is this assumption that that uh, um, and it is a Marxist assumption really that you don't take the other guy's reasons seriously because the reasons are simply it, it, it's just um, a smokescreen for for interests. And I so that's my own experience. But I remember another colleague uh, who is an expert on uh, immigration. Uh, and who had considered himself on the left, um, who wrote a book about immigration. And as he reported to me, I I thought he said we were in this country and certainly in this university uh, ready for an adult conversation about immigration. But he said, when I published this thing, I discovered I was a bad person. So my colleagues didn't simply disagree with me, but I was a bad person. Um, And if, if... you know, if the reason, if the real reason that you have a certain point of view is you're a bad person, well, there's no point in arguing with you. The, 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 the main point really is to um, undermine you in some way. So that's, that's you are, I, I think what you asked, if I remember it was, yeah. was you know, what's, what's the problem? I think that, that's part of the deeper problem. And do you think, so have these developed in recent time, is that what you're saying? What do you think yeah. that... There have been other challenges to open-mindedness in the past. How have things developed or kind of got to this point? I just observed that you know, when I was a student in the 1970s, an undergraduate in the 1970s, um, there were plenty of Marxists around and plenty of, of uh, deeply held, passionate, um, not very yielding political views. Uh, um, uh, I remember the 1970s um, demonstrations marching through Oxford with socialist workers and anarchists and whatever. So, so that's nothing, you know, strongly held, uh, not very tolerant, uh, not very open political views. That's nothing new about that. What's different is it's come to the centre more. Now, how has that happened? Um, I, I, I don't really... No, maybe social media has done something there, but I still observe um, that the the insofar as um, political zealotry is getting in the way of open conversation, still my view that that it's the zealotry of a minority, whether of students or of professors, uh, and the, the the large majority of students and and academics. Um, are not of that persuasion and want to ignore it. Uh, but, but somehow the views of the minority have, have come more centre stage and, and appear to dominate in a way they didn't. And I'm not quite sure why that's happened. About just that middle ground, it seems to me what you were saying is that there is this large sort of silent middle ground who are perhaps too no, absolutely. nervous to, to pipe up. What would you say to no, that? What's the, the, the responsibilities the, of those who are standing in the middle? That's, well, that's a really that's a really important point. And I, so so the, the empirical basis for this view that there is a, a silent majority uh, comes from my experience um, in the Oxford Union. So I think it was 2016... Uh, there was a, um, a debate in the Oxford Union about um, roads must fall. So, so should the statuary of, of Cecil Rhodes in the Oxford High Street come down or not? And I, of course, was arguing, no, it shouldn't. Um, I did feel as if I was in a minority of one, which was just about true. Um, 
and I was aware that that whenever the the um, those proposing the roads must fall spoke up, there were loud cheers and whistles and claps and whatever. And um, if you, if you listened, you'd have thought that the the, the audience was ninety percent in favour of roads must fall. But then um, I decided at one point to stop listening, and I I looked, and what I saw was a minority making a lot of noise and um, what looked like a majority of people sitting completely silent. Um, now, in, in, in the end, the vote was, it was it, it went in favour of Russell's fall, but only slightly. Uh, so there were, in the end, there were about sort of 45% um, against Russell's fall, 55% in favour. Uh, but if you listened to the noise, it was 90-10. <laughs> so that, 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 Gave me an insight, and then I, I've also heard, um, and I just watched the way in which Oxford College governing bodies work. You got forty people, sixty people. Um, if you have a small minority who have very strong convictions on a topic about which the majority are, are largely ignorant, or if not ignorant, then indifferent, um, then the majority will sway. Uh, partly because even if they're not sure, uh, they will defer to those who appear to be sure. So uh, this is probably a very human, a very human um, phenomenon. Um, so part, so uh, the lesson to draw from that is appearances can deceive and don't take silence to mean consent. It may well be people are just not sure um, and a bit intimidated because, you know, uh, people who look as if they ought to know what they're talking about appear to be terribly confident. Um, and if you're not quite sure, then you're going you're gonna to at least keep quiet and probably defer. Does that mean, so there's, there is the responsibility of piping up to say that you're not sure? There, yeah, there no. is something there. No, I, that, that's absolutely right. So it is really, really important for those who are able even to stand up and say, I'm not sure because, just to ask questions. Just to ask questions. I, um, I've always been impressed by that um, since reading about uh, a hero of mine. Um, his name was uh, Helmut James von Moltke, and he was um, he was in fact responsible for one of the uh, um, circles of of anti-Nazi resistance during the Nazi period, and uh, he worked in the in German intelligence during the Second World War. He was an international lawyer and uh, uh, he did his best to try and, and uh, stop the Nazi regime from pursuing ruthless policies against prisoners of war and, and, uh, and the like. And, and at one point, he went to his boss, Admiral Canaris, and um, basically said he was not going to, to consent uh, to this policy for X, Y, and Z reasons. And to his surprise, Canaris um, agreed with him and agreed to go and, and make the point to Hitler. And I, I guess what I learned from that was that, um, you know, Fomolka had to screw up his courage to go do that, imagining himself to be in a minority of one. But once one person did that, another said, hmm, yeah, that's right. Um, and that had some effect. So there's an enormous responsibility for um, uh, people who feel able to dare to stand up 
um, because they may well find they're not in the minority at all, uh, and and that they give other people the courage to voice their uncertainty and their doubt. Makes me think what you said at the beginning was first the first year undergraduate learning to ask the question, and the one person asks the question um, that opens up their yeah, that, that, that's right, so that's absolutely right. But I, I think yeah, it, it's not to ask the question because of course as an undergraduate when the one person stands up and asks the, the confident and terribly clever question, the, re the rest think, oh my goodness. Right, so it's, it's gonna, it, asking the question's right, uh, yeah, but, um, and in a hostile atmosphere, it can give courage, but in other contexts, of course, what gives courage is the expression of doubt. You know, if he can dare to express his doubt, then, then so can others, yeah. To say, I, I didn't really understand what you said about that, or, or the I haven't read. Yeah, yeah exactly, kind of exactly. Tell me what it means. So I take that, that's, you know, if you want to pin virtual language in that, it, it, certainly, it certainly involves humility, but also involves courage to expose um, your, your limitations, yeah. You talked about how you've been drawn into um, this controversial debate and kind of debate recently with the Ethics of Empire project. Do you think you could say a little bit more about the project and what it's about and what that response has been? Yes, so, so the Ethics and Empire project was hatched um, three years ago or so, and it is designed um, to, to take classic evaluations or critiques of empire from ancient China to the modern period. One classic example would be Augustine City of God, uh, and to, to um, consider what the critique was, and then ask the question, did the critic of empire actually understand what he was talking about. In other words, to put a critique against facts of empire, and not to assume we know what empire is, because in fact, historically, empire can mean all sorts of things. So that, that's, that was, the, that was the, 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 um, the design of the project. Um, now, um, what, what happened, what sparked the row was um, that at the end of, of November 2017, I published an article in the London Times arguing that, very simply, arguing that um, British Empire contained things that were very terrible, but also very good. Um, and that, therefore, Britons have reason to be both ashamed and proud of British Empire. Not just pride, also shame, but not, not just shame, also pride. And then a week later, um, we, we'd had our first meeting of the Ethics and Empire project the previous July, and a week later in early December, I finally got around to posting a, a, a notice uh, describing the, the project on the um, website of my research centre. And it was uh, a few days later that the, the row broke. And uh, uh, in brief, in the space of a week, there were three online petitions um, denouncing me and my project. Uh, first of all, two, one by students and then two others by um, two sets of academics, about, about 58 academics in Oxford mainly, and then about 170, 200 worldwide. Um, the, the latter one uh, was addressed not to me, but to the, to the University of Oxford. Um, um, and um, basically, um, urging the University of Oxford to withdraw its support from the project. So that took me completely by surprise. 
wasn't expecting it. Some of, some of my critics have taken the view that to engage with me or people like me is, is to legitimate my position. So even to countenance my position is to somehow give it a credence it doesn't deserve. But if that's the view you take, I mean, there's not much scope for conversation. <laughs> uh, for those of this view, um, there is nothing to be gained by rational exchange. Uh, there's, there's only to be, what's to be gained is by the denunciation or by persuading institutions to pull the plug on funding. In other words, the means are political, not rational. Um, and the, now how you, uh, how one counters that is difficult to know, but what, what you can't do is argue with it, because it's not, it's not worth it to be argued with. Um, so I suppose the only thing you can do really is to, shed, is to throw a sharp light in and say, folks, this is what's going on. Um, how on earth is this consistent with what a university is supposed to be about? Now, now most you know most uh, colleagues who are not who have who have no um, dog in the fight of an empire or whatever um, um, they would recognise that. Yeah. Have you had conversations with the silent middle and over this you know, informal ones, offline conversations? Have those gone, or have they not taken place? So, silent middle on, on the empire issue. Well, that's interesting because because the silent middle has remained mainly silent. <laughs> yeah, people talk to you, you know, say around the, you know the dinner table or you know kind of informal chat with a colleague. It hasn't yeah. been on one side of the necessarily in the public debate, but has yeah. said something or. Well, but but again, it's a, it's it's really interesting, uh, um, and I say this with no bitterness at all. I just find find it curious. Um, most colleagues whom I know have been silent. Said nothing at all, even around the, the dinner table. Now, to be perfectly fair, and I, I mean, uh, when I refer to colleagues, I, I, I mean generally speaking, and they include friends of mine who are still friends. And um, so I, I've thought about that and I wondered why. Well, partly they, they may not read the right newspapers, so they don't know about it, okay, that's fine. Uh, partly um, it's not their fight. So, you know, Bigger's off defending the empire. What on earth is he doing? Uh, so, so I get you know, I get that. It, it's my fight. Uh, but it's, it can't be just that, because uh, even if they didn't particularly agree or know what to think about why I want to defend the empire in any fashion at all, you know, they might have registered that um, I'd attracted a bit of a bit of aggro and it had been quite pleasant, unpleasant, and, and said so, but but no. Um, and I, I think I put that down, you know, in cases, you know, there are some colleagues who, are, who agree with my critics and have no sympathy at all, but I think I put that down to a real fear of being seen in any way to associate yourself with a point of view that appears to be unorthodox. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, Intimidation and self-censorship, and I don't quite understand how that's grown up. Um, because you know, it'd be perfectly easy for for colleagues who know me just to ask me, well, "Why are you doing this?" And that'd be an interesting conversation. Uh, but on the whole, no. Um, the silence of the silence has been been really quite striking. I, I mean, just to qualify that a bit, the the good news is I've had uh, communications from colleagues both in this university and elsewhere whom I knew not at all 
who have written to say, well, we agree with you or we support you or whatever. So some complete strangers have, uh, have at least got as far as, uh, as sending emails or inviting me to dinner, as, as has happened once or twice. Um, and that's been very encouraging. Uh, so it's, it's not all bad news, uh, but the, the, the silence of the majority in the middle is a bit puzzling. And the frustration on your part is not that everyone doesn't agree with you, but that there's there's not the free exchange which allows, no, that, that's, allows the barrier to be overcome. That's exactly right. And I, I, I'm, you know, I, um, I, I would love everyone to agree with me. Um, uh, that's very pleasant, but but I'm you know I, I take it as part of part of life and academic life in particular that not everyone agrees with you. So I get that. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, but we ought to be able to talk about it. Um, and uh, if you if you did, if they did, they find actually the, the reasons I'm interested in empire are far more interesting than they suppose. It's interesting to think about the kind of distinctive contribution that theology um, might make as a theologian. Um, and a few years ago, you wrote a book, Behaving in Public, on Christian public engagement and how the church might speak well in the public square. So I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about what you think theology contributes um, when it comes to kind of navigating contentious issues like this. Okay, yeah. Um, well, just to start with my experience, and then I'll, I'll get on to the theology. I mean, I, I was very struck by what some people would regard as ironic, that here am I, uh, going back to the... the Empire Rao. Uh, here am I, a Christian theologian, arguing in public for rational give and take, please. <laughs> you know, for many people, you know, Christian theologians, we don't do reason, we do we do blind faith. But here am I trying to defend rational give and take, exchange, um, openness of mind, uh, listening, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, um, um, I take some pleasure in, in that. I think that's what a Christian theologian ought to be doing, and there I was doing it. Um, uh, so getting back to the, to the theology, it's no accident that that's the, the view I took, because um, if you're a Christian believer or a theologian, then the, the notion of human finitude is a very familiar one. We are creatures, not gods. We, are, we have limits. We don't know everything. Um, therefore, we need to listen and learn, Okay. What's more, uh, we're also sinners. So even what we do know may well be distorted by interests, economic interests, selfish interests. Um, what we do know may be distorted by various things. So again, we need to not only be open to learn, we need to be open to correction. And what's more, um, for me as a Christian, the, the, point of, the point of conversation, the point of engaging with other people is to learn. Uh, and and the, the idea is that all of us, you know, I, I, I often find human life quite puzzling and difficult to make sense of. All of us are, are trying to make sense of this world. Um, um, I do believe there are, you know, I, as a Christian, I believe the, the world is coherent, both physically and morally. I think there are truths out there to learn. Um, uh, but I need other people to help me get there, uh, to help to challenge my assumptions and help me see things I didn't see before. So, so the point of our discussion is, is actually to learn. Um, and that, that, whatever other people think and why they think it, that, that I think is, a, is natural for a Christian to see things that way. Uh, and, and therefore, contrary to, to certain um, mistaken views of 
um, of Christianity, Christian theology, uh, I think uh, it's no surprise that Christians should, should want to fight for, for um, a, a genuine, open, rational uh, um, conversation uh, in which people try and learn together. Um, and I, I think also, you know, given, given that, uh, again, that, that human communication is, is often infected by what Christians would call sin, uh, what others might call, um, well, wrongdoing, injustice. Um, human conversation is, is often infected by uh, pride, aggression, resentment, um, irritation, um, deliberate provocation, defensiveness. Um, in addition to you know, virtues of uh, humility, docility, willingness to learn, uh, a courage in, in, in admitting what you don't know, uh, forgiveness too, because, because um, you, can, you can really injure someone in the way you converse, you can really irritate them, uh, and you can really alienate them, even in academic discussion. And uh, so if, if the enterprise is going to carry on, you need to be capable of forgiving. <laughs> um, but uh, that goes a long way beyond the, the kind of uh, statutory conventional values of uh, respect and tolerance. Um, I mean, I, you raise this question later, but the, the, the answer to my the answer to the question as to why we need more than respect and tolerance is, um, well, as soon as you ask the question, how, how do you make people capable of respecting or capable of tolerating? And if you ask that question, it becomes clear, I think, when you start to answer it, you need a deeper set of virtues, uh, self-restraint, patience, forgiveness. Uh, without those, uh, respect and tolerance are feeble. They don't have the resources. But those ones are hard and costly, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Shucks. Yes. Yes, they are. They are. Uh, but I, I guess, and uh, um, um, I, I don't think that, you know, I'm a Christian, I don't think Christians are, have a monopoly on the virtues, uh, but I simply observe that those virtues I talked about, humility, docility, self-restraint, patience, and most distinctly forgiveness are, are certainly Christian virtues. And the last one is, is perhaps, the last one, forgiveness, is, is more prominent in Christian tradition than in any other I know. Excellent, yeah. Um, one feature we see in public debate at the moment is that emotions are often heightened and they play quite a significant role in the ways we engage with each other. Yeah. Um, what role do you think emotions play in public discourse and perhaps particularly in social media, but yeah. first in public discourse? Well, on the one hand, um, I'm, I'm quite keen to, when I teach students, and I, I recognise the, the, the need to, to be fair and create, to create an environment where different views are fairly treated. But I, I do feel um, it's important to communicate to students that some of what I talk about, I care about. This is not just a clinical academic exercise. There are some things I care about and some things I believe to be true. Um, because I think it's important to know this is not a game we're playing. These things are important. And I, I teach ethics and I teach theology. So whether God exists or whether, whether there is morality in what it is, 
those are really important things for human life. And I have certain views, and um, I hold those views with a certain passion. And I, I think it's, it's good for students to know that, on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, um, you're quite right. Of course, what we see um, too much of uh, is a certain kind of destructive passion where um, people are so angry or so outraged um, that they, they can't listen. They don't want to hear. And, and, and uh, social media and, and Twitter, which I, I indulge in, as you've discovered, um, is particularly bad at this. Uh, and I've, I've learned from my mistakes on, on that. Um, but I have had reason to ask several times when I find myself engaged in a, in a Twitter exchange with someone that doesn't seem to be going very well, very, very well and you know, I, I try and make reasoned responses. I try and not to make them too provocative. And I find there's no, there's no give on the other side at all. They just come back with another angry response. Um, and I, occasionally I've said it, I said, what are we doing this for? <laughs> Because we keep on fighting forever. So, I mean, there is there's clearly a, a problem, uh, and I guess social media exacerbates it, partly because um, it's anonymous, so people's inhibitions are lowered, partly because, um, well, uh, um, writing quickly is always dangerous. Even email is dangerous in a way that letter writing didn't used to be, because an email you can hammer off a quick message uh, and, and, and if it's in response to something that irritates you, the irritation will come right through. In the old days when you had to handwrite it, of course time would elapse and you'd calm down. So technology doesn't help us here. It makes it fast, but it also makes it more difficult for us to um, calm down before we respond. Um, so that, that, that's certainly a dimension to the problem. But uh, there's also perhaps the resistance to giving reasons for feelings, which I think you kind of think Yes, And so yes. can you explain a little bit about how you think we should kind of engage reason and... Yeah, yeah. So um, I had an exchange recently about the European Union where um, a Twitter correspondent, whom I actually know, although you wouldn't guess it from the exchange, um, this this fellow uh, expressed his, his strong, passionate uh, affection for the European Union, which is an affection I don't share, although I, I, I did vote Remain, but it's an affection I don't share, and I'm skeptical of it. So I put some, I put some, I asked him, you know, why, why do you feel this? Why do you feel the European citizen? And he, he, he gave a set of, a kind of explanation, and then I wrote back and said, well, there are three problems with this. And I, if I remember rightly, the response came back. In effect, but, uh, uh, I feel this. That, uh, uh, I feel these. I feel this very deeply, and that's really the end of the discussion. And I said, "Well, no, it can't be. Um, it, it can't be the end of the discussion because uh, feelings lie. Strong feelings are not their own just justification. We have to, uh, whether it's our own feelings um, or or another person's, we have to be willing to interrogate them." And I. Um, I'm, I'm Anglo-Scottish by birth, uh, during the, and I, I, I was a strong opponent of Scottish independence, and during the uh, run-up to the um, 
referendum on Scottish independence in 2014, I lost nights of sleep worrying about it, deep, deeply invested. And I thought to myself, why? Why do, you, why do I care so much? I mean, if, if Nigel Bigger had to choose between being Scottish and English, the world wouldn't end, would it? No, and I had to say, no, it wouldn't end. And I had to say to myself, you know, I'm a Christian. The UK is not the kingdom of God. I mean, the UK was not written in heaven. It came into existence. It may go out of existence. I would regret it. It would not be the end of the world. Um, so I, I persuaded that, that. I persuaded myself of that. But then I said, well, okay, but well, why do you care so much? And eventually I, I sat down and I began to write an account of why I think the UK is valuable, which was quite useful. But I did feel the obligation to test my own deep feelings uh, because feelings can lie or mislead or they can be illusory. And, and one only needs to look at political life to recognize that. Uh, so you know, if some people say, you know, cold, hard reason, and I, I you know, I, 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 in my own thinking and writing, I like clarity. I don't like paradoxes. I, I like to make distinctions and get things clear. Uh, I, I'm aware sometimes you can buy clarity at the expense of reality, because some things can be more clear than reality is, but clarity is good. Uh, and you might find that, you might, you might feel, or you might think that's sort of cold and clinical and calculating, and maybe it is. Although I think, I think, I think one can have deep passions running through an argument that is nevertheless disciplined and clear. But if you, you know, if you, if you kind of think that, that sort of hard reasons is cold and unattractive, well, think on this. What's hot is violence. What's hot is bloodshed. And if you don't want that kind of hotness, then a certain coolness, by contrast, uh, perhaps is a bit more appealing. Yeah, so I think you've, you've said elsewhere that perhaps this appeal to reason isn't sufficient, but it is necessary in order to kind of um, yeah. exclude self-deception or, or manipulation, yes. those kind of things. Yes. Is, that, is that right? So, so it doesn't always capture everything that you may want it to capture, but, it, but no. on no. balance it does a better job than the alternatives and it excludes... Yeah, I mean, what, what, what matters is reality. <laughs> uh, what matters is what's real and true. Uh, and what's really true often has flesh and blood, right? Um, uh, but the, but the, the question of trying to figure out what's true uh, does require us to think. Uh, no, no, I mean, it's, it's, feelings can be true, and, and a lot of people who don't have the inclination uh, or the ability for kind of cold, hard, clinical reasoning, a lot of people can intuit and feel what's true immediately. And that's that, so, you know, I don't. Uh, uh, intuitions and, and feelings and hunches are not to be discounted. Uh, and, they, and they can be true and right. Uh, but often they have to be tested. And the only way you can do, do that is, is by thinking. And better to think clearly than not. And so feelings kind of don't give us a currency to engage is that a problem they give you, what do you do no no okay so that, that's that's right it doesn't i mean what i said to my to my twitter interlocutor i'm thinking about the kind of brexit debate you know you've got very passionate remainers like him 
who don't have a good word to say for Brexiteers, except to patronise them. And, and then on the other side, you've got uh, Brexiteers who have nothing but contempt for Romaniacs. And you know, it, it, if in political life all we've got is two opposing passions, two opposing rages, and, and my, my Europhile friend faced with the prospect of Brexit, he came out just and said, I, I, I'm full of rage, I'm going to stay enraged. Well, if all we've got is, is opposing rages, we are three steps away from bloodshed. Uh, so we, we cannot we cannot go with, with, with passion or feeling alone. Can I ask a question which might be off script? And that is that if, if you have those opposing rages and then we have reason as the kind of the cold element, that there may need to be space to cool down. Does that make sense? And yes. then an immediate appeal to reason. Yes. And I'm thinking of, say, post-conflict situations. An immediate appeal to reason can simply end up with yes. uh, an immediate but different conflict. And that the there needs to be space for yeah. the um, the passions to be acknowledged, the strengths of yes. passions, without yes. um, underwriting them or... No, you're right. So, so I, I guess what one, in addition to reason, you need you need emotional intelligence. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's sometimes when uh, trying reason isn't going to get off the ground, um, and you need there's, there's a time for there's a time for reasoning and the the cool reflection. But you may need to, to create the conditions for that to be possible, uh, and it may need other skills, not not rational ones. Probably, probably um, a great quantity of the virtue of sympathy and charity to try and create emotional bridges to the other side before any kind of rational exchange would even fly. So you've already you've really helped us, um, Nigel, in turning us to virtue, which, like you know, is, is what we're seeking to do, or an aspect here we're seeking to emphasise in our work with the Oxford Character Project, thinking about the kind of people we need to be and become and the kind of qualities that students need to grow in the university and teachers and, and, and others as well and in wider society to think well and wisely to lead towards the good. Um, we've been, so this project we're focusing particularly in this open minders discussion on one virtue on intellectual humility. You gave us a good list and hired some, some particularly prominent intellectual humanities one, perhaps we could focus in there and maybe you could expand for us for a little bit. What's your understanding of intellectual humanities? So we're asking that question to a few different people on this podcast. And perhaps you could say something as well about how that virtue is cultivated. So what practices are going to be important if we're to regain that as a or develop that um, virtue and, and that's to be important in our interactions with each other in contentious discourse. Yes, the virtue of, of humility, well, I, I, I suppose the, the virtues do kind of overlap, don't they? Because it, it, it takes a certain courage to be humble, <laughs> I mean, uh, to, to admit your limits and to admit your faults. Um, but it's, it's really, Actually, for good academic work, for good writing, or for um, healthy communication and conversation within universities, um, humility is really 
important. Because if you're not humble, you don't know your limits, you don't know what you, you don't know that you don't know. Um, if by contrast you're arrogant, then whichever space you enter, you will fill with yourself um, and your ears will be stopped. Um, uh, you'll offend other people and you will learn nothing. And um, unless you want conversation to be an echo of your own voice, uh, which will bore other people and you will learn nothing, uh, then you need to be humble enough to go into a conversation with the intention of learning. Um, as for practices we could adopt to um, encourage humility, well, I mean, it, it does help if you, if you spend time in Christian churches, then you learn a lot about the habit of confession and prayer, which ought to inculcate it, but that aside, outside of church. I mean, one, one way that might, might um, bring your attention to the value of humility is, is first of all to ask, when you engage in conversation, what are you trying to achieve here? And if you're not trying to, to, to learn, and not open to learning, what are you trying to achieve? So that's, that's one thing. You know, I think it's really important for, for those who, who recognize the importance of it and know how to do it, to show it. Because uh, nothing is more infectious than example. And it's really important for um, senior academics in, in universities to, to um, um, demonstrate that. Um, I mean, you would have thought that senior academics would all be able to do that, uh, which is a mistake because lots of senior academics, uh, it, it's a kind of, uh, I guess it's common syndrome, very successful people often feel they don't deserve to be where they are, so they feel oddly defensive all their lives. But if you can get past that, it's really important, I think, to, to, to show it uh, and to show the world doesn't fall down. Uh, so, so, you know, I guess I'd say if anyone's thinking of, thinking of daring to show themselves humble in public, uh, do understand how very attractive it is and how liberating it is for other people.